Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. How long since your last confession, my son? 27 hours. It's really too often. You're not that bad. Here in Capitol Pictures, as you know, millions of people look to us for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. And we're going to give it to them. And action. 
An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. A truth we could see if we had, but... If we had... This is the Next Real Film Board on Rashpixel.fm. Everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and this gang of thugs has gathered once again to spoil a brand new film currently in theaters. This month on the show, it's Old Hollywood Week as we head back to Shea Cohen for the brothers' latest trip to the comedy well, Hail Caesar. Today on set, we have Andy Nelson. 20 million listeners want the truth, Pete. And Tommy Handsome. Yeah, see? JJ, Justin J.J. Yeager. Thugs. Countrymen. <laughs> Steve Sarmento. I would that it were so simple. Before we get into that, you should go learn more about us this this show at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And please don't forget The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. New contest starting every Monday, now with fancy new graphics. Ooh. That's Steven, that's Steven Smart is fancy. Good fancy, stuff. Fancy He's so life. intelligent, there's got to be a word for that. <laughs> <laughs> He's making this look like a real professional operation. He really yeah. is. He gussied up the joint in a hurry. Love it. Uh, hail Caesar, gentlemen. I am very excited for a number of reasons to talk to you all about this. First, and not for the least of which uh, reason, that this is the first time the Coen brothers have ever hit the film board, even though Andy and I have had uh, quite an experience with two, I believe now, counting two Many seasons on the Brothers Cohen. Oh yes. Uh, so let's start. Uh, let's start. Steve, could you give us your opening statement? Sure. I don't know that I'm going to agree with you guys. I've got some interesting things to say about this because I went in thinking this was going to be this lightweight comedy, and I think there's a lot more going on in this. It's not exactly what I expected, but it is an enjoyable film, and I really look forward to delving into this one with you guys. I'm so happy we're doing a Coen Brothers movie, and I totally need your guys' help on this. So it's it's really exciting that we're going to spend this whatever amount of time together to talk about it, because I really, really liked it, but I have no idea how to recommend it to anyone else in the world. And I don't know if that's a Coen Brothers thing or just this movie, um, but I really loved it. And I actually bumped into some like old neighbors today walking into a theater about it. And I, and all I could think of is, do you like Coen Brothers movies? Because <laughs> that might be it. But I want to hear your guys' take on it because I uh, I was really happy with it. It, it was it was super enjoyable to me. And, um, and I want to figure out how to talk to everybody else about it. Um, I'm a little conflicted uh, only because I really, really, really enjoyed the movie as, it w- as I was watching it. But just minutes after I left the theater, I felt like it started leaving my head that after I had sort of pieced out some of the uh, allegory that's involved, or the Christian illusion, I guess is what I was talking about, is there's just, I, I guess I really enjoyed it, but ultimately I wish there was more to sink my teeth in, and Coen Brothers usually give me something like that. And for this, there just wasn't quite enough. That being said, I was really happy to see it. Well, you know, we've talked about a lot of Coen Brothers films, and... 
you know, the Coens are often hit or miss for me. I, uh, I, I, I can't say I'm a, like a huge Coens fan because, I mean, I probably hate as many of their films as I really love. And this one landed in the hate category. I just really did not like much about it. I felt the story was um, just meandering and disconnected. The pacing, I felt, was really lacking for something that is billed as a comedy. And a lot of critics are saying it's, you know, this great comedy. I just didn't see it. I mean, I just, it's... It wasn't there. It was it was a slog for me. I had a really hard time. I uh, I really didn't like uh, Lebowski. I really didn't, and I've I've seen it again. I have just a hard time connecting with it. But I loved the Hudsucker Proxy. So where do you think I'm going to land on Hail Caesar? Yeah, that's positive. interesting because that's exactly me. Because I I can't stand the Big Lebowski, but I love the Hudsucker Proxy. It's one of my Cohen's favorites. There you go, Tommy. More to, for you and I to connect on. <laughs> uh, I, I I actually found myself really enjoying this film. I I I was really excited about it, and I, but I'm kind of uh, in in uh, your camp that it's sort of the Chinese food of Coen Brothers films. That it's like you eat a really filling meal, and like 15 minutes later you're hungry. I just I I don't know that I can remember exactly what it was about. I actually saw this with my mother and father, and my dad and I walked out, and we both really liked it. And we asked my mom, "What'd you think of it?" And her response was. I think I liked it. I don't think I got it, uh, and and I I wonder if that's a if if that's going to be sort of a general theme. Uh, so I'm I'm very excited about it. the whole idea of this film, the the Coen's uh, uh, latest take, Hail Caesar. Uh, I think is wrapped up in this quote from Joel uh, Cohen. He says, "The fixer is the same person in an insane universe. The movie business is a lunatic asylum." This movie is about a fictionalization. Actually, I'm not even sure it's a fictionalization. It is about a man who happens to have the same name and career uh, of a real-life fixer in Hollywood in this period, uh, Eddie Mannix, uh, played uh, by the great uh, Josh Brolin. Uh, And so he's a fixer. He's designed to go around and keep everything moving smoothly in Capital Pictures. It's supposed to be uh, MGM. Okay, so everybody in here has some connective tissue to a real life counterpart. But really, this is a a fantasy, a Hollywood fantasy um, uh, about this guy who's trying to keep all the, the trains on the rails all the time. So let's, can we start out, Steve? I think you had brought up this, this uh, commentary about the Idiot Trilogy. Can you talk a little bit about the Idiot Trilogy and, and um, uh, how this film fits? I first heard about the Idiot Trilogy, I think it was maybe about 10 years ago, uh, when this film, I think in its basic form, just as a title, I had read about that, uh, that George Clooney had done Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he'd done Intolerable Cruelty. And then he had mentioned in, in an interview somewhere that there was a third film in the Idiot Trilogy that he was working on with them called Hail Caesar. And then nothing happened with that. Burn After Reading came out, and a lot of people grouped that in as part of the Idiot Trilogy. That's one of the, their films that I didn't care for too much. And I kept waiting for, where's, where's Hail Caesar? Where's Hail Caesar? This was what was supposed to be part of the Idiot Trilogy. Please let it not be replaced by Burn After Reading, which I just didn't. It didn't have that same feel because I really like Oh Brother and even Intolerable Cruelty. They just have this George Clooney character who is the central figure who is a somewhat intelligent person, but also very awkward, inept, or I guess sort of full of himself. 
in a way. So I was really interested to see how this fit in. And I think that was one of the obstacles I had to get over because this wasn't so much his story. And I think this got promoted as a, a George Clooney, you know, Cohen film. And he is a character in it, but he I wouldn't say he's definitely the central character. We, we know that that's, that's Eddie Mannix. So I was really interested to see if he still had that idiot character. And I think it, it worked out really well with um, his character, whose name is eluding me right now, because I don't have a uh, Baird Whitlock. So uh, George Clooney is Baird Whitlock is his, to me, his third idiot. And this is a man who is successful in what he does, but maybe completely clueless about what's going on. And to see his transformation from movie star to communist and then back to movie star, I think was sort of an interesting journey to, to see what happens with him. But it really ties in more to what's going on, which is central to the story with Eddie Mannix. So it, I am getting my third Idiot Trilogy film because of George Clooney's Baird Whitlock in this film, but he isn't really the central figure as with Clooney's characters in Oh Brother and Intolerable Cruelty. So I, I'm satisfied that I got my third Idiot film, but I really don't think this is the Idiot comedy film. It's got a component, but the main thrust of the story is, to me, something much more uh, serious. JJ, what's the what's the story about Clooney? Do you think it's it's Clooney that moved this film to getting made? Well, in some of the sort of offhanded anecdotal background, it it, it really felt like he really wanted it to come to fruition, whether or not the Coens were going to get around to fully fleshing it out and writing it. And that was kind of what I had wondered. And and I, I'll echo some of what Steve said in that he really isn't the central character here. So there's something about it that is. Uh, sort of an affection for him and probably an affection for the Coens as well. I, you know, we talk about the premise of, of the film, and I, I think my, my affection for the film is really it feels like a love letter to Hollywood. And you talk about the, the story arc and, and what happens for Eddie and what happens for the, the, the other characters in the film is that they sort of find their true joy in their business. And that's kind of the... The, the choice that Eddie's making throughout the film is that there's there's more stable things, there's less uh, l- less circus atmospheres that you could be a part of, but he really m- makes things happen. Uh, and so does everyone else in the movie industry. And that, that's kind of what I got from it. Um, I'm, I'm interested in so much of what we've all said at this point, too. It, things that Andy's been talking about, about that critics are calling it a comedy. I don't, you know, yes, it's funny. I, I laughed at, in a few places. I thought there were set pieces that were quite funny, but I don't see it as a comedy. And that's kind of where I get into that confusion of what is this movie? And for me, it's it's sort of a, a, an anthology or a tribute or, a, a like I said, a love letter to, to Hollywood. And, and, and I liked that. So, so if Clooney was behind that because of his position in Hollywood, or or and and really tapped into the the Cohen's creativity for that, I, I I it was worthwhile for me. It's a comedy like Transparent and The Martian are comedies. We don't quite know how to define these films. Thanks, totally. Golden Globes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It kind of goes to you know who are the Cohen's making these for? I mean, because I mean, this was a. It was a film that was marketed poorly because, for me, the trailer makes it look really kind of like one of their much funnier comedies, like really kind of just a screwball sort More of comedy. Cap. It doesn't give you any hint that it's going to be a Barton Fink sort of story, you know, kind of this, you know, heavier, supposedly deeper sort of story. Um, and uh, it was very misleading. I mean, the audience that I was with, 
oddly, it was entirely seniors and my wife and I, and at least two groups of them got up and left, no. just complaining about how how it was nonsense. And then after the movie was over, the the old uh, group behind me was just like, "Well, I hope the outtakes make more sense. So this thing is just garbage." I mean, I'm not sure sometimes who the Coens are making their movies for. I mean, it. It just seems like that. I, I want to say it feels like they're trying to do some like highbrow, deeper comedy or something like that. But it, just for me, it just it wasn't entertaining. It wasn't funny. Like I, I found nothing funny. The musical bit of it was like one of the most the the least interesting musicals I had ever seen. It just it just it doesn't connect at all to anything. And it just you know, I mean, I I enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed little bits here and there, but. I just, you know, sometimes I just wonder, it, it just seems like they're making movies because they want to they want to make this crazy story and they want to do these fun 50s scenes. So how would you could compare it, if you're thinking about audience, in like the difference between something like this and maybe like a Wes Anderson movie? I don't know. I saw a review that actually compared this to um, Grand Budapest Hotel because they both, they both have kind of a... a, a I guess, a more serious tone to the comedy. Although I didn't really feel that in Grand Budapest Hotel. I felt that that one moved moved quickly. I thought it was very funny. The characterizations were great. This one, it just it just plotted along. Um, I, I blame a part of that and Carter Burwell because I thought the music was awful in the film. And it just it just really didn't move anything. The pacing was really poor. And Wes Anderson, I would say, that moved really well. Well, I think you make a valid point, though, because that, that kind of goes to my earlier question. And how am I going to recommend what I liked about this movie to people? Because I don't know who it's made for either. So I think you're totally valid in that point. I don't think it's for a lot of people. I mean, I think it's for people who enjoy highbrow comedy that is supposedly deep. Jeez, Andy, that's kind of mean-spirited. It is. <laughs> well, at least you know it. <laughs> He's going to own it. I like that. So the the... Piece with you know J- Justin, your you know question of you know who to recommend this to. Yeah, it's challenging. What I find interesting, I'm on the opposite side from Pete. When I finished this movie, I was like, huh, I think I liked it. And then the more I thought about it and sat with it and thought through everything that I had just seen, I thought, I I really like this. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing this again because it just took me a while to digest and pull everything through together. I realized what this story is really about is why does Eddie make the decision he does at the end of the film? That's what this whole thing is about. We have a story that's set over about, you know, 24 hours, a day in the life of Eddie Mannix, and all these things that he goes through. And then why does he make the decision that he does? He's got this job offer from Lockheed, and we see all these reasons why he should leap at that, that, that offer, but he chooses to stay at Capitol. And why does he do that? Because he's Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it, it opens with a shot of the cross in the church. It ends with a shot of the cross on the screen. It's like, yeah, you know, it's his faith is movies. No, I disagree. It's about his struggle to identify, is he a good person? That's what he's, We start off with him in confession, and he's, he's talking about he's lying to his wife about smoking cigarettes, which doesn't seem like a big thing. And then we see through all these people he interacts with, all these corrupt people that are, you know, you've got, you know, this actress has got this kid and isn't married and you've got, you know, all these problems that everybody has that he has to clean up and fix, which causes him to reflect back on himself. He's got all these people making bad choices around him. Is he a good person? Is he a good father? Is he a good man? Is he capable of being a good person in the midst of all of this? And it's his realization, I think, that his role is helping to save these people from 
themselves. He's absolving them back to, of their sins. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He, I think and, JJ's right. He is Jesus. Uh-huh. Yes, but it's not his faith in the movies. It's about what's doing right and what type of person you are. Because he talks when he's got the uh, panel of religious leaders and they're debating, you know, theology and all that. And he says, "Well, hey, you know, isn't there a little bit of God in each one of us?" And it's something that he's struggling with. Of is there good in me? Can I still be a good person in this industry? And to me, that's the struggle. Because if you look at Lockheed and the offer that they make him, when that guy pulls out the picture of the A-bomb and Eddie says, oh my gosh, Armageddon, it's like, do you, yeah, you're dealing with a clown full of craziness, or do you want to work for the company that's going to destroy the world? Sure, you've got great hours and great pay, but you're going to be part of something that's going to lead to like massive death and destruction? That's what that decision's about. I'd rather be saving people than killing people. Uh, yeah, I mean, one way of looking at the film is that Mannix is Christ, and he's sent by, is it Skink or Skank? Who is Skank. the unseen? Skank. Sent by Skank, who is God, the unseen God, <laughs> right. to manage all of the troublemakers on the studio lot, which is Earth, and absolve them, help them out of their problems, thus absolving them of their sins. Mannix, the Christ figure, is tempted by Lockheed, the devil, just like Christ was, uh, for the easy job, giving him his dreams. And that's why he decides that is it best to do something that's easy and makes sense versus doing something that actually helps people. Uh, later on, when uh, Clooney's character uh, is talking about um, once he gets tempted by atheism, uh, you know, atheism partly uh, delivered to him by communism, saying that we're all just cogs in a machine, that there is no higher meaning, that Skink is an absentee father or God who takes and takes and doesn't give anything back. Mannix says, no, there is worth to what they're doing, to creating and living life, to creating and living in movies, and then forgives him, saying that he is a star in his own right. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can go with with that. I don't think that movies is his faith. I Well, maybe it is in a way because I think that he believes in the business. I think he, no, he believes in creating. Sure. That the people that are involved in all this are worth forgiving. And are Would you worth say creation? Well, Jesus didn't really create that much unless you believe in the Trinity. But I think the idea is that his father, Skank, if you want to say the Father, God, Jesus sort of situation, created this whole world. And within the world, yes, they are creating new life in movies. And uh, that he believes that all of this world, as crazy and as nonsensical as it is, with all the arguing and infighting and sinful behavior, that it is worth something. It's not just business. It's something more than that. And and yet, what's so funny about this whole thing, Tommy, is that that he ends up, you know, taking so the the fruit, right? The fruit offered by the devil of going to Lockheed is the much more sort of culturally acceptable job. What he does and the way Hollywood is portrayed in this film is ridiculous. And yet they're making that the positive choice. That is the virtuous choice in this film. Does that not strike you sideways? It is interesting, and I think that gets to the, uh, we decided this wasn't as madcap maybe as it could have been, but some of the ludicrousness involved in the entertainment industry. I think they're trying to sort of take it both ways in seeing how insane it is, and yet 
And even when the lunatics are running the asylum, it's still an asylum worth having around that uh, offers a lot of work. The you know to get to Pete's question, you know, lots of you know belief systems, faith, religions have aspects to them that go counter to you know the society that they're placed in. You know, the whole idea of, you know, Jesus saying, if somebody hits you, you turn the other cheek. It's like, no, if somebody hits me, I'm hitting them back. There's that counterintuitiveness. And I think that's sort of what, you know, is part of that aspect. Now, of course, we're layering a lot of things on here. We're, this is what I love about the Coens is we can have all this discussion. We don't know if this is intentional or not, but what I think they do that is so artful with this is they, they pull on threads that are connected to these images and themes that resonate in culture by touch being touchstones to these different things so that we can start to assemble these pieces to say it might also be saying this i with so many of their films i see those things i never know if it's intentional or they're just saying these things can be embedded and interpreted in so many ways we put them in there and it can just enrich the story because it adds sort of i don't know volume of meaning to things and I think that's what makes this such an enjoyable film is that you could look at it as just this straight story you might be disappointed but if you start to peel layers away you can start to pull on these different threads and tie them together to say there's something else here and that's what I really enjoy about some of their films that are this balance between the screwball slapstick and the more rich you know allegory and to give credit to what andy was saying or andy's opinion of what it sounds like i went and saw this with a friend of mine named jer and i explained kind of what i just did that whole way of looking at it and he said oh yeah that does make a lot of sense i still don't care (laughs) right (laughs) he was not a fan of the movie uh here right and i think that that's sort of that's definitely uh, just because there is that stuff doesn't necessarily mean it was enough for me, but doesn't necessarily mean that they made a an engrossing actual film with a driving plot line with something to really solve all that kind of stuff. Right. A movie full of allegory does not a good movie make. Well, and maybe, you know, it, it, dep- it depends if that matters to you. Right. I mean, the, the idea is uh, it sounds like everyone in Andy's theater didn't get it and it was important for them to get it to enjoy the, the movie. And I'm not sure for me it was that way. So in terms of the allegory, I, I didn't really get into it that deeply in while I was watching. I, I thought about it a lot afterwards. And I, and I think back to the Cohen experiences that I've had and, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and, and, and kind of what's going on there. And then you piece all the put all the pieces together as as you walk away from it whenever i enjoy a cohen movie i'm enjoying the just kind of the frivolity just the the little set pieces and the creative novelty that's added to each individual piece when i like it if there's if 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 there's one i'm not a big fan of lebowski either which i feel like we're actually kind of sinning by uh confessing that that Three fifths of us are. I can hear. I can hear listeners pressing pause <laughs> and going to going to Mark Marin second by second. The collective gasp in Portland is deafening at this point. But um, yeah, I, I I'm not a fan of that either because I feel like it's so hitched to an allegory that I never really got. Whereas in this film, I was really entertained by the sort of novelty of the little set pieces. I loved different parts of it, and I didn't need to get it while I was watching it to enjoy the movie. Um, so whether or not this has more allegory or less than some of these other Coen Brothers movies, it, it didn't really matter to me. And, and Pete asked, do they respect the faith? It, it, it didn't particularly matter to me. I, I really enjoyed the film, but separate from all that stuff. And it was, 
it was good to me that that was there as well. So let's talk a little bit about the structure of the film and get uh, into the the story itself. Obviously written by uh, Joel and Ethan as well. Uh, the movie kicks off and we are um, looking at, uh, we're in confession and then we look at a watch uh, and we're moving through the day uh, anchored to the story through this visual of the time. I like it involving, especially involving, and if I'm leaning too hard on it, let me know, but with the allegory, if, if, if he's a Christ figure and the studio lot is the world, not seeing this really long time, period of time, just sort of seeing like, if a Christ figure was real, what's his day job? Like, what is his job during the day with these huge amount of people, with this huge amount of fires that he has to put out with the sense of that's just one day? And the next day it's going to be crazy. And the next day it's going to be crazier. Kind of the idea of how the camera really uh, pulls up at the very end to show the whole lot of like, you just saw a couple um, sound stages. You just saw a couple of these pictures of the ones that he rattles off those crazy names and stuff like that. I kind of really like it. I love contained timepieces. I'm a huge fan of those. Uh, But I thought it sort of worked. It, it worked idea. for me too. It worked for me too, and for the same reason. It's something that it's a, it's a mechanism in film that I'm I generally like. And whenever I was confused, I just assumed it was part of the allegory that I wasn't quite aware of yet. So, example like the clocks and watches. We saw clocks, and they were always pointing in what seemed to be a similar direction, but I don't remember, and I wasn't paying enough attention. But I just assumed that it was something with the. the with the allegory that the Coens are never going to tell me and that I'm going to appreciate in a small, silent, secret part of my soul. Uh, well, as far as the the fact that it's a day, I mean, and the clocks and stuff, I mean, to me, that was like a nice little uh, bit to just say, hey, this is all happening in a day. I didn't really see much. I didn't think that was part of the allegory. I just kind of took it as if that wasn't there because he's, you know, changing venues and changing stories so often, it could have easily been taken as, you know, spread across a week or something like that. So, you know, that didn't, uh, that really, I guess, didn't phase me too much. The, I, I enjoyed the little bits, but there was just, there was, I don't know, there was so much of it that it just kind of kept taking me out of the story. And then when I was watching those, he kept cutting to the filmmaking process, which kind of took me out of the actual moment. And so I, I never really got into any of it. Um, I, br- I brought up the musical bit earlier. And I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, No Dames is just really a poorly written song. It was just very dumb. And I know they're trying to write it for the time. It just it, it just didn't work for me. I just felt it was not a good song. Um, but even like the dance number, like nothing about that scene was interesting. It was just, it felt just flat. And um, yes, they kind of also are cutting back and forth with the production element of it, but I just didn't get a sense that they really, I don't know, I was torn on, were they really trying to make stuff feel 50s-ish or was it just, and and, and not hitting it or just, was it just not working? And I, I don't know, I, I couldn't figure out why none of that was really working that well for me. I enjoyed the actors. I enjoyed them in all the little bits they had. Um, it frustrated me that most of the stuff that I enjoyed that I found funny, I had already seen in the trailer. And some of the roles, I, I was kind of equally frustrated that that like somebody like Jonah Hill, I pretty much saw his entire performance in the trailer. There was not a <laughs> moment from Jonah Hill that was not in the trailer. Um, you know, and it's, it's just it's it, I think it was a really badly cut trailer because they show us 
you know, the big climactic uh, moment when George Clooney fumbles his line right at the end of the film. Um, they show us a lot of stuff that's just like it's it's key moments in the film. And it's just like they were trying to figure out how to advertise it to the crowd. But they show so many of the big moments that nothing was really left. And, I, you know, I don't know. I just really couldn't connect to it. And I saw all the allegory stuff all over the place. This was just a case of it's all there. It just nothing is connecting for me. And I just wasn't interested in it. Hearing Andy talk a little bit, I feel a little bit like in the last film board about Finest Hours. Um it finest hours hit my ear and hit my eyes at times so different than everyone else. That doesn't mean that I was wrong. That doesn't mean that Andy's wrong. If it just didn't work, it didn't work. For instance, the entire Channing Tatum dance sequence, I could not stop smiling. I was so wow. happy. I loved it. And I loved going back to that old kind of filmmaking where they would, it's just talent on parade no hiding behind cutting you're seeing their entire bodies the entire time it was just i just thought it was so i mean when you talk about a love letter to hollywood that was the part that really came through to me i thought i loved it and that doesn't mean that i'm wrong or maybe it does but it's but i mean the idea of that these different ways of seeing certain things exactly what andy said completely fell flat i thought the coen brothers nailed incredibly well song and dance what, talk about the homoeroticism. Did that was that a little bit uh, over the top, or or was it? Yeah, by the okay. end where he got caught in the middle and it was yeah. all that juking and then it was just kind of like, yeah, I didn't need that. I I would have rather them play it a little bit more. I guess seriously, even though it's a crazy number of nonsense, I didn't need that personally. So, uh, but. The rest of it, I really loved. Very interesting to look at the different genres we get because we get the Scarlett Johansson sort of the, you know, the how uh, oh, I'm stumbling over my words. With Scarlett Johansson, we get the choreographed uh, Esther Williams type, you know, swimming thing from the fifties. Aquatic. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for, and we and we get the period piece drama, which was one of my favorite scenes to see, and, and we'll we'll need to talk a little bit more about Aiden Ehrenreich, I think just really stood out as a, a really solid performance. But to see this this stunt cowboy actor thrown into this serious drama and have to walk across a room without moseying and just how out of place he was, we had that that type of film. But then we also got to see the, the singing cowboy film. And what really struck me about that was there was a little bit of a tragedy in that. He's out on his date with, with Carlotta, the, the screening of his film, and he's about to sing a song in the movie. And he leans over to her and sort of apologizes and says, you know, I'm sorry if this isn't that good because they only let me do it once. And he's just this amazing singer. And the audience completely misses it because they're too busy laughing at the slapstick comedy of the guy arguing with the moon, falling in the trough, splashing in the water. And I thought, this poor kid who is so talented is being overlooked. And but it was a nice. We had the that you know the westerns were also a big part of it. And through that sort of different pro, you know, then we get the Tatum Channing sort of Gene Kelly style musical. I love this because I got to see all of these types of films that. Everybody, you know, I think has maybe one or two that they have a special place in their heart from that golden age of Hollywood to see those recreated again. I was right there with Tommy just smiling from ear to ear during the No Dames dance number. All these pieces were just so entertaining. They they got them close enough. I think, you know, you could argue that's not quite at perfection. I don't know that's what they strove for, but they give, give you that almost their 
I don't know, their gift back to Hollywood of these are the things that we appreciate. We're, we're, we're showcasing these things again. And they did it in a way with the structure of the story to be able to tie the characters into this whole plot uh, around Eddie Mannix. It just was a great balancing act to be able to balance all of those pieces together to keep me thoroughly entertained from the beginning of the film through to the end. Absolutely. Like go through the kind of steps. And then that one time, uh, Andy, when you brought up the idea of them breaking away from the uh, scene at times to show the movie making process. I personally liked that because I find that, that that type of when MGM was really going, was really cooking like that. And especially was a musical factory. um, They were, they, took uh, movies like an assembly line. That's how they treated it. And they would do these huge numbers in one take over and over again. And it involved hundreds of people moving in the set, moving in all that kind of stuff. And I've always found some of those outtakes of old films really fascinating. So I liked seeing that happen in real fake time. Oh, I guess, well. I mean, I I should I should clarify a little bit. I I liked it in... For example, the scene that uh, Steve brought up with the drama. I liked that because it actually felt like it was a part of the story. The whole thing with uh, Ray Fine's character of Lawrence Lorenz, um, kind of watching him and directing, that actually f- was a part of the story. But oftentimes, like in the middle of other scenes, they would cut to guys, you know, the, the grips up on a, on a, on a sure. stand up above, just kind of looking behind, almost as if, hey, let's put the camera up here just to show that because we're making a movie. You know, and, you know, and... I'm sure that that was part of their message. They deal with framing of the you know the story uh, quite a bit throughout this film. But for me, it just didn't involve me. It kept taking me out of it, except for those moments where it actually really was a part of the story. Oh, what about the uh, the communist narrative? Uh, how did uh, how did that play when we first are introduced to the merry band of screenwriting communists? JJ. Well, I, I, you know, again, this is probably, you know, that sort of question of whether I'm catching the allegory right or not, but I felt like it was, it was a tool of the time, of the period. Um, and then again, it, it's, it's part of that serial comedy piece in putting the idiot Baird Whitlock in with a bunch of heavy political scientists that all have this great theory um according to them uh and then he just sort of embracing it and dismissing it at the same time um i i thought it it again it worked in terms of that serial nature of of the film about that sort of it, it was the madcap right it was the it was if if you found that funny that was one of those little set pieces that that worked for you as as far as where it fit in the film uh, I, I didn't deal, delve that far into it when I was watching it. Um, but again, it's probably part of the allegory that's going to work within the mind of Joel and Ethan Cohen. Baird and Hobie Doyle represent potentially two different kinds of man. Uh, uh, Baird is the man that is very, uh, is not religious, is not, usually is probably a little bit more self-absorbed in himself as an actor, of course, that kind of works. And so he's very able to be easily swayed by the idea that there is no higher power, or if there is, it is a higher power that does not believe in us, skank slash God, and that we're all just a part of the body politic, that we need, that we deserve everything that we get, that it's all equal, all this kind of stuff. Whereas Hobie Doyle is maybe the penitent man. 
He's simple. He keeps his head down. The first things that we ever see about him is him really wanting to do a good job for his father in the scene, even in the director as the of the Western, that he really wants to do a good job over and over again. And he wants to do that job continually when he meets Ray Fiennes, when he meets everybody. And the Pennington Man is able to bring the more worldly but uh, less solidified man, who is played by Clooney, back into the fold, back into what is real. He's able to help him bring him back, I guess one could say, to God and to religion. Exactly, because that that was the part that troubled me for a little while when, when Hobie gets cast, I mean, so out of his area of expertise, but he is so earnest about it because he has that faith in the studio system, you know, of this is my job, this is what I need to do, I'm going to do the best that I can. And that's what he does. He's asked to do something that's so far outside what he is normally doing outside his area of expertise but he commits a hundred and ten percent to that and he's going to make this work no matter what and that's really getting playing back into that allegory of of the faithful man who may be asked to do something that's outside his comfort zone but gosh darn it if that's what i'm being asked to do i will do that it's like the easiest job story in history (laughs) it's job in high tales and no boils (laughs) <laughs> being being, com- being completely confused and it making no sense why his father God is making him completely change everything that he knows and yet he believes and he goes for it. I wonder if we went back how many times he looks at his watch and it's three fourteen in the afternoon. See, <laughs> clocks yep. and watches. Yeah. Um, uh, let's uh, let's move into the uh, the practicals of the film. The, the specific thoughts on the direction by the brothers Cohen. Um, considerations of uh, casting and and their particular trope. I have something I'd like to bring up as a question about casting. Uh, and actually, I guess you would call it stunt casting. Of course, stunt casting has nothing to do with stunts. It means the idea of having really big actors play sometimes small parts or at least parts that are way against their nature. For instance, like Andy brought up, uh, Jonah Hill as a completely tied down, boring, weird stamper in his entire stamper of documents. Would this film work without such a star-studded cast? Or would it just sort of fly away a little bit into nothing? Because so much is tethered on, so much of my smiling was like, oh my gosh, there's George Clooney, and what a, what a boob he is, like you said. And all of these different people. Would it work, or does this kind of film only exist because the Coen brothers are able to get the biggest stars in Hollywood? I think you're probably answering one of our earlier questions. For those people who it did just kind of fly away into nothing, they might not be, they might not know or care about those people. Yeah, and I thought this was one of those movies where, I mean, the Coens are so brilliant at casting great faces. I mean, they have just, I mean, you just look at any of their films, they're always full of them. Perfect example of a, a great unknown face is the maid in the house where they're holding Baird hostage. Mm. Uh, I just I thought she was just a fantastic character actress who's in there twice. Um, they're so good at that, and yet this is full of movie stars. And for me, I just thought that was a, one of the messages of this movie. Or I don't know if it's a message, but I thought it tied into this whole Hollywood of the 50s, let's fill it with Hollywood stars sort of thing. Part of the reason stunt casting 
is necessary is because the parts are so small. And I think that's, you know, a, a big reason why you put a face in there. We connect to them because, oh, okay, Scarlett Johansson, I can connect to her because I have a connection with her already. Oh, that's interesting that they already bring the positive version of baggage. Right. When you mentioned stunt casting, I was thinking something, well, I had a different take on it of something that was interesting to me, and that was the communist writers and who was cast in that and who they were and if they were to, if they were also representing actual historical people or were to bear resemblance to certain historical people. And the one that stuck out most to me is uh, Patrick Fischler. I don't, I had to look him up because I'm just like, he's one of those guys. And I saw, I saw him and I go, his hair isn't usually like that. He's usually got really dark hair, but he's got this like white, like flat top haircut. And I thought, is he supposed, supposed to be somebody that I'm supposed to recognize if I was up on my, you know, blacklist from Hollywood in the 50s. And same thing with like David Krumholtz, you know, is he supposed to be somebody? Because I look at the types of lines that they were given to represent the dynamic of that group. And to me, I was wondering if the stunt casting was, these are, sure, they're, they're names and faces that people may recognize, but they also maybe physically bear some resemblance to some historical figures. That's interesting. Like there's a trumbo in there somewhere. I wouldn't put it past them. That would make a lot of sense. So the interesting part about the communist scene, and this goes back to something Andy was talking about, I think in terms of how the movie was filmed and being of that era, it was something that I just loved tremendously and it made me smile so much is when they're actually on their rowboat out there to, to get to the submarine, that that was shot... Uh, at least in my opinion, the way it probably would have been shot in the 50s, which was soundstage and then with miniatures, because it's just really clear that that's how they shot that. Because they didn't depend on, you know, computer graphics or anything. They shot this the way they made movies in the 50s. They shot it on film. And how do we do this? We can't afford to get a real submarine and all of this. So we're shooting a little boat on a little, you know, everything in miniature. And it was so, to me, obvious that that's what they were doing, that it just made me enjoy this movie so much more. I thought that was that the way that it was shot was a lot of fun to Andy's point. I think um, with all of my obsession about the allegory and stuff, that's where things started to break down for me. I don't understand the importance or why it turned out that Channing Tatum was one of the communists or why the losing of the money and all that kind of stuff. That's where I, I, I haven't figured any of that out. He's Judas. But what does that have to do with the money and the dog? Right. Well, I don't know about the dog. <laughs> I haven't gone to the dog yet, but isn't that the money thing, right? I don't know. He's given money to betray Jesus. Right. But he doesn't lose the money. Maybe. I mean, but I mean, they lost the money. Doesn't he? Doesn't he rep- like recant and then give up the money? I, yeah. But for me, that money t- to me that there were two things in that whole scene. So the the briefcase reminded me of Big Lebowski, and also the. The first time it appears when we're it wrapping up the whole um, Lawrence Lawrence scene where they're going over line readings, the the noise swells into a waves crashing against the rocks in the water, which to me was this whole connection back to Barton Fink. I don't know if you guys when the last time you saw Barton Fink mm-hmm. was, but the way, so I thought yep. okay because we're at, we're at Capitol, which is the same thing, and I thought that was an interesting sort of cross reference to their own film and. To me, the the money piece just 
for some reason reminded me of Lebowski of just, I've got the ransom. I've got to get the money. We lose the money, those things. So it was, I appreciated sort of those little nods to their other films, whether they were intentional or not, I don't know, but it it was just something that just little added bits of flavor to the film that made me appreciate it. Oh, wait, faith, things that, I'm sorry, Andy, can I interrupt and be totally annoying? You're right. These guys who represented no faith in a higher power, who represented maybe atheism, it depends on how far you want to go to this, they still believed enough in Channing Tatum and the submarine and what it represented with Mother Russia, they were willing to give up all of their money, whether it be 30 pieces of silver or not, to the better good that they believe would come of it. Here's the thing with here's the thing with allegory that that drives me nuts. When you have a story about like, you know, communist screenwriters and a communist star who's going to defect to Russia and then you layer an allegory on top of it, you know, what is the story then serving? And what happens is, okay, that all may make sense when you're looking at the allegory, but when you step back and then look at it in context of the story, it's like, well, it doesn't really work that well in context of the story. And that's why the Coens never cop to it. Well, yeah, and it just, it, but it doesn't work and it doesn't make for a good film, I don't think. I mean, it, it was like the water, I mean, the, the suitcase falls into the water. It's like, dude, it's like within arm's reach or at least just jump down and get the suitcase. It's full of money. It's like, why are these people not doing this? Oh, because it's here to serve an allegory. I mean, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I, I really kind of dig what Andy's talking about. Uh, just the idea of like, yeah, it's fun to dig through this stuff, but does it really make an engaging film? That's It's interesting. I mean, I said at the beginning, and I've been talking a lot about the allegory and stuff, but that it did start to escape me immediately as soon as I left. It's a good well, point. And Well, then think about the Coen Brothers movies that you do like and think about what what the the hidden or what the the inferred meaning is in those films and what's different about it. It, did it push it too far this time or not far enough? Is is it is it just the the right bit of illusion or is it is it just just nonsense? Like a hundred thousand dollars floating and in, sinking into the sea. Oh, I love it. We have allegories on allegories. I think that the for me what the the conclusion, the better conclusion that I'm coming to from my conflictedness in the beginning is that I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry, this sounds like a closing remark, but to Andy's point, I really wish that the film itself and the plot itself and the driving force was a lot stronger versus me having so much fun sort of trying to dig through the allegory and the illusion and figuring that stuff out because that's the only part that is that I have to sink my teeth into. The film itself is pretty light with great performances and great sequences, but still. Yeah, I think you just said you just said better than I did earlier what my what my shortcoming what I found as a shortcoming in the just general narrative is that it, it's hard to piece it all together once you leave the theater. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. I, for me that's a that's a fair criticism. And I think you're you're right. The performances were a lot of fun. Uh, I think it could have been better tied together. Um, well, I I think that's the difference between say a story that's a full on allegory where point by point there are parallels to something versus something that has allegorical elements. And I think that's what I was trying to get at in my intro of they have they pull in these pieces. I wouldn't say this is a complete point by point allegory where we can match every single thing, but it's definitely got 
components that are have allegorical elements to them to i think give it some cultural resonance to allow people to to have that piece but yeah i would not say this is you know eddie mannix is jesus christ and this is and when he does this that's when jesus did that and these things are exact parallels and if you try to do that yeah you're gonna you're gonna come up against pieces where you're going to really struggle to find meaning and you're really reaching, you know, what does the bag, the, the briefcase of money represent? What does the belt mean? I mean, no, I don't think we can do that. I think it's more along the lines of they've just got little touchstones along the way that connect and to add that resonance to it. So I, I just, I think that's the ground that they often ride in their films and to just bring that, that uh, you know cultural piece to it without committing a hundred percent you know oh brother where art thou has elements of the odyssey but you can't connect all of it there's there's places where they're going to deviate that's where you can get your your slapstick stuff where they can really express themselves so they don't get fenced in and hedged in you know as far as writing they have some freedom but then they can also bring it back to the core to keep it grounded absolutely that makes a lot of sense it's like a foundation to build off of. Can I, I just jumped as a bit of an aside. Did anybody see that have before this movie, did anybody have the trailer for Risen? No, what's Risen? Nope. Okay. Risen is Kevin Reynolds, Waterworld? Uh, new film, Kevin oh. Reynolds, uh, Waterworld, Rapa uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, wrote Red Dawn. Yes. Rapa Nui. Uh, so Kevin Reynolds, is the, it's the epic biblical story of the resurrection is told through the eyes of a non-believer. Uh, Clavius. And it looks exactly <laughs> like Hail Caesar, but not oh funny God. at all. That trailer was on before Hail Caesar for you? Yes. That's oh so my funny. God. I would have thought that that was like a Coen Brothers plant. It, felt, it felt just like it. Not only that, who stars in Risen? Joseph Fiennes. Oh my gosh. Oh, weird. Too much, right? It was too much. <laughs> Allegory. It's a plant. It's a trap. All of this is taking place inside of a uh, snow globe. Oh, shoot. A snow globe. Yeah, it's a snow globe. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. Uh, okay, Andy, you wanted to talk about uh, expectations of hitting a woman in the 50s. I don't know yeah. how else to segue to that. I, it, it was just something that, that struck me. That at the end, when he's confessing, he says, oh, I hit a movie star today. And it just, it, as soon as he said that, I was like, no, you hit two movie stars today. And it just, it really all of a sudden struck me that it's like, okay, so was that intentional? The Coens saying, you know, it didn't, you know, back in the 50s when a, when a, a fixer like this has to hit a woman to straighten her out. It's it's nothing but hitting the movie star, hitting Baird Whitlock. That was something, or is that the screen, the screenwriters Joel and Ethan Cohen just kind of forgetting about that? I mean, it really kind of irked me quite a bit because to me it felt like it felt dismissive. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of uh, hyper analysis. I mean, honestly, like saying that he hit a a movie star today could represent hitting multiple movie stars, couldn't it? In Confession. No, you'd say I, I hit two movie stars today. I, I don't know hitting really? a movie. Okay, star so who's, who's, so so Baird and the other one that he hit? Are we talking the, the woman at the beginning? The, early, the, beginning. the girl at the beginning is yeah. she a movie star? The pol- the know. police guy recognizes her, right? But I mean, and caliber, and it's, that's not the point. Stars, you know, I think you that, can but look that's at not that. the point. Well, you can, but then you're if he's confessing his sins, yeah, is that not a sin? Oh, to hit a I woman? Mean, what, well, yeah. yeah. Unless I, it's something that they're, again, saying culturally, in the 50s, oh, blah, sure. blah, blah, blah. And that, that could be part of it, yeah. 
I don't know if there's really any answer to that. It just it just bugged me. It was just one of those things. Uh, it was uh, the production of this thing took place. Yeah, they shot in and around Los Angeles, and that actually uh, warmed my heart a little bit, given all the the hue and cry over the film business leaving Los Angeles. Uh, and it made me wonder, Tom, why weren't you in this movie? I was. <laughs> yeah, I played the moon. <laughs> I was the lazy moon. You guys didn't get it. Originally, I said. I'm so lazy, but they cut it out. Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't work for the allegory. Uh, <laughs> cinematography from uh, the great uh, Roger Deakins. Andy, we've talked about Roger Deakins before. Yeah, I think uh, on our show and the film board. Wasn't that Prisoners? Yeah, I believe it was Prisoners. Uh, what do we think of Roger Deakins' camera on this one? Now, he says uh, this was the first This was the first thing since True Grit to be shot on film stock. And his comment, I don't recall having these kinds of problems before, but it makes me nervous now. I don't want to do that shoot on film again. Frankly, I don't think the infrastructure is there. And another nail sounds wow. in the yeah. coffin. That's Roger Deakins saying that. Wow. What, did we, uh, what did we think of Deakins' camera in this film? Uh, J.J.? I liked it. I thought it was simple. It was colorful. Um, and I think uh, it, the thing that I noticed was kind of the allegiance to framing. And it's and they they use it. They use it uh, to tell the story, too, which I think I appreciate. Um, there didn't seem like there was any accidents uh, in what they were doing with the framing of the shots. And in particular, the one that I remember is when uh, they're making their way out to the sub and, you know, they're trying to find their exact spot in the sea. And they have to position themselves according to the the light between the rocks. Just stuff like that where you look at it first, it seems like it's off, but they're using it as a, a way to tell the story. And I appreciate that. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it, it was neat that it the filmmaking of the movie scenes and the not movie scenes still aped basic ideas of that time period of movie making. It was just candy-colored enough. It was just always sunny and beautiful enough. Night scenes were just given a little bit of a noir kind of feel that it made it seem like not only... Kind of like way back uh, in the olden days, did people see in black and white? No, just the movies were like that. But this made it sort of feel like um, the whole time period was that. And it really worked for me. You know, we brought up Wes Anderson before. The, the kinds of filmmakers that are willing to do things that appear as novel to maybe the uh, seniors who might be in the in the theaters in Phoenix. Um, I really like those movies. So um, I think I liked all of the novel things they did with the camera and the framing and all of the really tossed asides here in this movie. And and the Coen brothers do it all the time. Uh, I didn't like it in Lebowski, but there's a ton of it there too. So, At risk um, of putting you on the spot, JJ, what is an example or two of the novelty you're talking about for this movie? When for- they are sitting in the screening room and they insert shot to be shot later, right? So, And they're doing that full screen, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, that's novelty for me there. Um, the idea of in the editing room when Francis McDormand chokes and you see the, the film blow up <laughs> and then they reverse it and she comes back and then they go back into it again and it's just edited out just really quick like that. Like stuff like that. The, the sort of the stuff you don't see. And in, in it, it's again, it's a movie about movies. So there's, there's that. So is it, special is it thing, kind of but, a, a meta aspect? I'm trying to, to yeah. refigure out the definition of novelty. 
Well, if you look at the other Coen Brothers movies, it, it, Lebowski, there's so much crazy novelty in it where you can draw. There's you know fever dreams and and drug induced things that are all kind of uh, changed aside. Here, it works for me in the fact that it's not a straightforward told story that's a, a, a direct line through the whole thing. They go back and forth through these serial episodes and they use novelty to do it in a very graceful way, I think. When uh, Eddie is talking with the sisters, having these two separate conversations with them outside, and whenever the movie title On Wings as Eagles is mentioned, then in the background you'll hear a bird <laughs> shrieking <laughs> so every single funny. time. And it's just those little, little things that they're so disciplined and restrained with that novelty when they do it they commit to it but it doesn't become overwhelming where it's just we're doing it for the sake of doing it i think there's always something intentional and disciplined in it that it keeps a balance to that where you have playfulness when when it's it works and other times they commit to you know traditional standard practices and it's that the way that they can play with that and balance it that i think makes their films unique so that it's, it really stands out when you say, well, as, as JJ mentioned, well, do you like the Coen Brothers films? How do you just define that? It, it's really hard to categorize it because of the the way they play with those things as as needed for that specific project. Uh, let's run through the cast real quick. We've already mentioned Aiden Ehrenreich uh, as the real surprise hit of the film. I thought he was just terrific as mm-hmm. uh, as Hobie. Um, any other is it Aiden comments? or is it Alden? Well, I I typed Aiden in our notes. I know. Therefore, and so Aiden, it, it, it shall it be. It shall be. <laughs> I think it's Alden. And Beautiful Creatures is a really great movie, I would say. I, I think you should definitely check it out. That's him being young and, 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 and a straight man in a sort of YA witch movie. But I, we really like it at my house. It is Alden. Aaron Reich, you are absolutely right. I stand corrected. I am, sh- I am shamed. Thank you for the recommendation, though, JJ, because that was one that was in the YA fever when all those movies came out, and that was going to be a franchise. And for some reason, it just completely fell apart. But I, it, I'd like to see it. Okay. It did. It did poorly, but it's it's yeah. it's fun. I didn't Great. see Stoker either, but I heard that I was supposed to. Interesting. With uh, Mia Wasikowska, Nicole. Yeah, Kimmel. that that was supposed to be an interesting one, as I recall. Yeah, I never saw that one either. Okay, good talk. Uh, all right, uh, Josh Brolin uh, as the lead as as Mannix. I found him uh, fantastically charming. I I liked him just about every time I saw him on screen. I thought he did really well. I th- I felt like it was different Josh Brolin than I've ever seen him. Um, I I'm not. I don't think he gets typecast, but it's the kind of thing where he he bought into this role in a way that I didn't expect from him. I, I was I was with him the whole way. I don't think he's type. I think he was at risk of becoming typecast for a while. Um, and then he's, now he's Thanos. I mean, oh, really? He is? Is yeah. he really Thanos? Yeah, yeah, he's wow. Thanos. I think the Coens cool. uh, do well with him. I, I think they know how to work with him. And I like the way that they wrote the Mannix character, and I like the way that he portrayed it. Um, it's definitely not like the dark Bob Hoskins Mannix from Hollywoodland. I mean, that was a right. Uh, the movie was darker. Um, it was, I think, you know, much more based on reality and everything. But um, I think Brolin just carried a lot of weight with his conscience and everything here, without uh, you know letting letting us have to dwell on it. You know, we were able to kind of just watch him go through stuff. And I thought he did that really uh, effectively. Uh, 
we've got a lot of stunt performances, as Tommy called them, stunt casting uh, choices. We've got Ray Fine, Scarlett Johansson, The Tildas, Swinton, uh, <laughs> Francis McDormand, Channing Tatum, Jonah Hill. Uh, Clancy Brown uh, shows up briefly in the film Hail Caesar. One of my favorites, Christopher Lambert, uh, is is in this, and he looked very strange. Yeah, he looked know. really. I didn't strange. recognize him, and that's again where I wondered about the stunt casting. If he was supposed to be a specific right. director, so yeah. one of the the German, you know, emigrants, that came, filmmakers that came over. You know, fleeing Germany, and I thought I I just don't have I haven't been you know up on my Turner Classic Movies to get all my history to know if this was supposed to be somebody because I couldn't tell if it was makeup or what, but I I thought it was him, and then I had to check the credits at the end because I thought it it feels like Christopher Lambert, but maybe it's not. But it it was it was very surprising to me. Yeah, I thought he was uh, he was terrific, and man, has he been working constantly? I thought he just sort of disappeared for after. Um, well, I'm going to say Highlander. <laughs> he just kind of <laughs> fell off the map. You know, he's been working since then. <laughs> yes, he has. And and I guess that's the other stunt casting is you put Clancy Brown and Christopher Lambert in a film together that's not yeah. Highlander, but not on on uh, screen together. Yes. I think that's a that was a funny bit. Um, uh, any other uh, b- terrific performances you want to throw out there uh, of of the stunt casting that we haven't talked about so far? I think Fisher great. Stevens. Oh, Fisher Stevens in the he was in the he was a communist writer. Yep. And the idea of Coen Brothers taking care of small roles and stuff, even Josh Brolin's um, assistant following yes. around. I'm sorry, I do not know her name, but she was wonderful and had so- Heather Goldenhirsch. Well done, Andy. That's amazing. Um, Heather, Heather Goldenhurst was, there were like layers to it. I mean, how exciting just to not be like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. Like they even, they wrote it and she really acted incredibly well of just that person of like, I don't know, how hard is it to be an assistant to Christ? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. We've already had some contention uh, brought up around uh, Carter Burwell and the music. Uh, who would like to begin? I, I I felt like it was caricature. I mean, we talk about he's he's our double feature, right? He's last week to this week, and we were we were kind of one of the things we said in the finest hours thing is that he kept hitting the same notes over and over again, uh, uh, sort of emotionally throughout the finest hours, and that was something that had hit people wrong. Here, it, it because it's a serial film, because it's you know it's meant to be sort of a caricature like that. I, I thought it, it worked fine for me, but Andy hated it. It's the Carter Burwell-ness of it. The, you know, <laughs> all of the, <laughs> just all of this. <laughs> You're being a real Carter Burwell today, Foster. I'm saying that to my dog. <laughs> no, his music, it, it just, it, sometimes it just has a lot of weight and it just, it just yeah. feels really heavy and plodding. And in a film that already is heavy and plodding, his music doesn't help. Um, I think his. I think he can write good scores. I just didn't find this to be one of them. I mean, uh, people still seem to kind of really enjoy some of this sort of music, and I, I can't remember. I want to say that Burn After Reading may have 
gotten him an Oscar nomination. I can't remember for for score, but I you know I really disliked that score too. So it could just be me just disconnecting with his music in Cohen films I don't like. I I really I yeah I mean I think that's an interesting perspective, Andy, and and I think a bold sense of awareness on your part. <laughs> I uh, I confession. actually really uh, I think I really in, enjoyed the music, but I, I enjoyed it in the context of the film. I don't know that this is one again that I would be uh, singing along to, but uh, I did enjoy it. I felt it helped move the serialization forward uh, and and I but I also think that I'm I was listening to it with a keen ear for the finest hoursness of it and I didn't get any of that um, so I, I, maybe I am I'm hearing it with enough of a of a ear of relief um, that it's it's sounding better to me today than it normally would have I did you get his it. latest album ear of relief <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I'm I'm looking for the uh, for the Academy. He was nominated for yeah. He was not. It was Carol. it's Carol, the one that yeah, yeah this year. Yeah. Which also oh, I'm watching I mean. Carol right now. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm not. I don't know. No, I mean not while we're at taped. this moment. I was I like, my <laughs> neighbor Carol. I'm watching her. That's awesome. How's the music? And <laughs> sorry, I mean in real life, but not really because screeners are illegal. Go ahead. This, uh, this, <laughs> we have reached the end of our our uh, finest hour. Uh, and uh, did you see what I did? I brought that forward. Uh, it's time for us to wrap up. I, uh, I'm very curious if any of you have been swayed by uh, Andy's portrayal of the malcontent this evening, Steve. No, because Andy's just wrong. He just, he just <laughs> no. I, it, it, they, their movies are very divisive. I, I love Lebowski. I can't stand Burn After Reading. The Lady Killers, I didn't enjoy. You can this. Their films are very divisive. You either really enjoy them, or you just like don't get it. And this is one that doesn't, you know, ring any bells for Andy. I, I love it. Uh, I'm looking forward to viewing it again because, like Lebowski, I think this is one where I. I got a sense of it. There's things that I enjoy, and I look forward to delving deeper into it with with each repeated viewing and just enriching my experience in this world that they've created. Well, I don't think that anything changed from my initial question in that how I could recommend it to others. But we brought up a lot of good points about why that might be, and and you know the question of whether you know the the big stars in the film make it more enjoyable or whatnot. That's a really interesting question. The fact of the idea whether getting the allegory or getting into the allegory is important for the enjoyment of the film. Those are some interesting things about the film for me. It didn't change for me in terms of how much I liked it. I really liked it. And I think at its heart, if you love if you love uh, movies or art about movies, you'll probably like it, unless it didn't hit with you, which is what it kind of did for Andy. But for me, I really liked it. I I, I actually laughed, and then comedy is really hard for me. But uh, the silliness, the frivolity was great, and I will go back to my initial uh, sort of recommendation. If you like Coen Brothers movies, you should try this one out. Well, and and following up on that, I mean, yes, if you like Coen Brothers movies, you should see this. I, I It is definitely a Coen film. And I mean, I, I agree with Steve also. They're very divisive. And, and I, I also love Lebowski and I also hate Burn After Reading. And I have my issues with uh, the Lady Killers. It's just one of those things. I, I just didn't connect with this one. I'm curious, you know, I, you know, as going back to our conversation about Barton Fink uh, quite a while ago, Pete, um, I didn't like that movie when I first saw it. And then when we talked about it, I really connected with it. Who knows? Maybe in 10 years, I watch this again, and it's something that I really connect with that time. Um, 
I will say, as much as I didn't like this film, it is a Coen Brothers film, and therefore I do give it more um, uh, a chance for rewatching it later down the line. So there's that. I like what Andy just said. I like what everyone has said, but I really like what Andy just said uh, with the idea of that maybe things will grow on him. Maybe he didn't like Barton Fink, and then he ended up liking it, and maybe this one will turn around. I think there is e- very much equally, 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 if not more so, a chance that this film, which was enjoyable for me and then went away, it was really fun to talk to you guys about it. Upon reflection, if I watch it again in... Uh, a couple weeks in a couple months there's a chance that I could wonder what all the fuss was about because there is there's great performances some really fun moments and not that much to hang on to so it'll be interesting to see Andy I think you and I have a movie date in our future (laughs) aww Aww. (laughs) one last thing if you love this time period of uh, movie making and stuff and the reason that I know so much about the real Eddie Mannix who worked for MGM there's another wonderful podcast not as wonderful as ours but pretty wonderful called You Must Remember This and she has an entire sequence about MGM in the 20s and 30s and a lot of it involves Eddie Mannix it's a beautifully uh, made and written podcast and I suggest you go see it if you like it give her a review and let her know that we sent you there it is uh, really a, a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Um, and incredibly researched. Yeah, incredibly researched. It's uh, Karina Longworth uh, is is just delightful, and she's got a number of great guests. She has never called any of us, but we're waiting with bated breath by our corded phones. I'm going to subscribe <laughs> right now. Yeah, it's it's great. It's really good. Yeah. Okay, I think it's time uh, that we we get to the very best part of the film. At long last, we're going to flick chart it. Hail Caesar, star-studded entertainment from the Coens. Is it a pleaser or a dud? There's one good way of knowing. Hail Film Board, JJ, Andy, Tommy, Pete, and Stephen. Let's do a flick chart and give a vote that the people can believe in. Get over the bar. (laughs) Flick chart. I realized as I was writing it, it was the exact same song as The Finest Hours. It's your so Carter Burwell it. flick Carter chart Burwell. song. Yeah. Exactly. So I ended it the same way. Thanks, Carter Burwell. One at you. <laughs> Head over to flickchart.com slash TNR Film Board, and you can find all of the films that we have talked about on this very, very show. And there are quite a few of them from our very first in 2012, Prometheus, to our most recent last week with The Finest Hours. There's like 30-some-odd films in there, and uh, they're all great conversations. So you should start ranking them, uh, and you should start with this one. And all I can say is I, I hope it comes up against Oz the Great and Powerful. <laughs> Andy? Ounces. All right, first up, Hail Caesar or The Dark Knight Rises? Dark Knight Hail, Rises. Hail Dark Caesar. Rises. Yeah, Dark Knight Rises, I guess. I'll throw, I'll throw <laughs> my vote. I'm not, I'm not yeah, thrilled I mean, about either of them, but... <laughs> Man, somebody just yanked your football. <laughs> what, Steve? What did? <laughs> Everyone How did that voted one go? for I'm... Dark Knight Rises, but me. Oh, okay. Uh hail Caesar or the Wolverine. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Says me and JJ. I would pick Hail Caesar. 
Yes. I, I also pick Hail Caesar. All right, Hail Caesar. I know you're right. You're right. I know you're right. <laughs> Hail Caesar or Thor the Dark World. I'll do Hail Thor. Caesar. 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 Hail Caesar or Divergent. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Caesar. Hail Caesar. Did I see? Is it Divergent the one I didn't see? That was the first <laughs> one. The first one. Oh, Insurgent. the first one I did Insurgent see. Insurgent was the second one. Um, Divergent. Hail Caesar or the Born Legacy? Hail Caesar. I'll mm. do the Born Legacy. I will also do the Born Legacy. Caesar. Caesar. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Guess that went to Caesar. Uh, that's it. 23 out of 43. That's pretty good. All right. It's I like in it. the middle. That feels all right. That puts it below side effects, really? And below the finest hours? It puts it below the finest hours. That's Oh. What? Jeez, we broke something. Get the Dark Knight Rises. Ball. It was the Dark Knight Rises. That was it. And you know what? As soon as I said the Dark Knight Rises, Steve, I regretted it almost immediately, but I felt like the, the tides had already turned. No, let's re-rank it, because it shouldn't beat the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> the algorithm doesn't lie, Steve. <laughs> but wait, <laughs> did you guys get my vote? Algorithm. Did you guys get my vote for Caesar over Dark Knight Rises? Because I realized I was muted. It was, still two, it was still two to three. Three Dark Knight Rises. Oh. Yeah, there's no recount here, Steve. We believe in the system. The system is all we have. What does this do for our star ratings, everybody? Letterboxed? Uh, this is JJ. I'm three and a half. I love that. This is Tommy. Three and a half, please. No, four. Nope, three and a half. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that extra half that Tommy threw away. This is Steve. I'll give it four stars. I'll take Tommy's extra half. I will also, I will also give it four stars. And I'm at one. Whoa! Whoa! (laughs) Holy smokes. I have completely underestimated how much you dislike this film. Well, that being said, I still would rewatch it. So that's the weird thing. It's Cohen, and it's like, it's Cohen. I hated it, but I still feel like I'll probably watch this again. Damn them. All right. Well, that's a 3.2 hour. 3.2. I can live with that. Sorry, Andy. So that's got a 3.2. Finest Finest Hours has 2.85 and it's ranked lower on Flickchart. That doesn't make sense. We should re-rank it. Different worlds. Different Different worlds. Letterboxd and Flickchart. Don't mix the two. Oh, all right. (laughs) 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 All right. Gentlemen, uh, where uh, this has been a a fine conversation, if if not a brief one, where do we go (laughs) from here, Andy? Well, we are going to be uh, talking about our next film in the uh, Movies in the Remake series. We're going to be talking about Outland, the uh, kind of remake of High Noon. And then we've got another shorts episode, another three of a kind from Steve coming up. What is that one about, Steve? That one, as I indicated, is about Guardians. Uh, Very much looking forward to that. And then our next film board in March is going to be Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. And that's a long ways away. That's that last weekend in... uh... I'm not going to talk to you guys for like seven weeks. Weird, right? Weird. Rafting trip! (laughs) I'm not the first one to think rafting trip, right? This has been a fine conversation. I appreciate you guys uh, uh, getting around the table once again. Steve, always terrific to hear your voice. It's been two wonderful weeks meeting with you guys, talking about fine films. And JJ? I love watching movies with you guys. It's the best. Tommy? I love it! America, friendship. Always the patriot. And Andy, as ever. 
We'll talk to you next week. I'll see you on Thursday. We did it! Here on the Film Board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. TheNextReel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to TheNextReel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 